Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And so I pray that as we come to this word that testifies to you now, who you are, I pray you give us eyes to see you clearly. You would give us hearts that would respond to you rightly. And we ask this in your name. Amen. The Lord and the Rings, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Star Wars. What do they all have in common? I think those stories have been so popular uh, across generations because in each of them, at their very heart, is the simple story of good against all the odds triumphing over great evil. Good against all the odds triumphing over great evil. Aslan overcoming the White Witch and her minions. Luke Skywalker destroying the Dark Emperor and his Death Star. Frodo Baggins resisting the Ring of Power and so defeating Sauron and all the armies of Mordor. They are really uplifting tales, aren't they? Good against all the odds, triumphing over evil. Uh, but then we come back to the real world, we watch the news, we pick up our newspapers each day, and we see that despite the best efforts of many, evil continues to flourish in our world. The scourge of terrorism, warring nations, corrupt leaders, uh, politicians who, who promise much in the way of restoration, in the way of justice, and doing what is best for our society, but we are so used, aren't we, to them not delivering on what they promise. And so this great hope of good ultimately triumphing over evil in the end, it seems very far off indeed. Will it ever really happen, or is it nothing more than a fairy tale? Well, in these verses, uh, this account from Luke's gospel this morning, we see Jesus coming face to face with diabolical evil, a, a wickedness that is so great that no mere man can handle it. And it is through this confrontation that I hope we'll see that with Jesus, the promise of good triumphing over evil in the end is no mere fairy tale. Luke starts by giving us some important bearings. Come with me to verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Luke starts by telling us that Jesus is making a significant detour in his ministry here. He's now moved away from Galilee where he's been for the past few chapters, the place uh, where his own people predominantly live, the Jews, and now he's entering into Gentile territory, the, the place that could represent, as it were, the nations outside. This is the first time in Luke's gospel where we see Jesus actively ministering to the wider world. Now, here's a map to help us up on the screen. You've got it in your little outline as well. Uh, and the country of the Gerasenes is... Uh, that area to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And you'll notice that big title there, the, it was part of the Decapolis. Uh, literally, the ten cities. 
And each of these cities that were, they were established through Alexander the Great's conquest in the third century BC, and since then they had formed this loose alliance for their mutual protection, these ten cities in this entire region, the Decapolis. It's a Gentile area, and it is a pretty prosperous area. Uh, the guys living here, they are, well, they're enjoying the finer things in life. They're doing pretty well. But not everyone. The first man that Jesus meets is really, really desperate as we begin this confrontation. Have a look in verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has encountered a demon-possessed man in his ministry, someone whose body has literally become a vessel and an instrument for evil. In fact, this is a reminder for us today that behind the brokenness of our world in sin lies a hidden spiritual realm that is there in which Satan and his forces are active promoting our world in rebellion against our creator and in the most extreme cases enslaving grown men and women and causing them to dance to their own wicked will. Here we have a truly desperate man. Carrying on in verse 27, for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now much like we would generally avoid naked men strutting around in the noonday sun in KL, well so with this grown man he hasn't worn pants or a shirt for some time and understandably the local folk for the whole have been kind of keeping their distance from him. It's not hard for them, though, because he doesn't live downtown either. He's not one of those awkward neighbors in the apartment next door. This is where the man lives now, amongst the tombs. Uh, back in Jesus' day, they built tombs into cliff sides and hillsides far away from the city because, well, the city folk didn't want to really live anywhere near these kind of places. It's understandable. But this man is continually found amongst hillside tombs like this one. It may be that actually the reason he's in this desperate situation is due to a previous past unhealthy communion with the dead. He may have been involved in divination and messing with powers far beyond his control. And now those same dark powers are messing with him. However he got this way, he now reeks of death and decay. He's a complete outcast. He's isolated and he is hopeless. And yet Jesus still takes great interest in him. And so now we see it's the demon's turn to be desperate. In great surprise and terror, the demons shout through the man, verse 28. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, remember last week, as Paul Barker was teaching us about uh, the way in which Jesus and his disciples were crossing the, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus calmed that deadly storm that whipped up in a moment before the disciples' eyes with just the power of his word, and they, as a result, asked themselves, who then is this? 
Who then is this that he commands even the wind and the waves and they obey him? Uh, to them, to this point, that they're starting to learn, but still they can only really see Jesus, the rabbi, their teacher. But see the insight that the demon has here. He knows who he's facing, doesn't he? See what he calls Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The one who he knew not only had authority over the physical world to calm winds and waves, but whose reign extended over every realm, including that of the spiritual realm. And so this demon is terrified. Verse 28, what have you to do with me? Why are you here, Jesus? I beg you, don't torment me. Because we're told Jesus had commanded the Spirit, this evil spirit, out of the man. And for the first time, these demons are genuinely afraid they have met their match. Before the confrontation continues, though, Luke wants to make it clear to us that many had tried to deal with this evil before. See how he carries on in verse 29, halfway through 29. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the deserts. See, this man, clearly he has his bad days and he has his really bad days. At times the demon would just seize him uncontrollably and create all kinds of chaos for those in the area. And so in fear for their own safety, the city folk, they had desperately tried to restrain this guy, bound him with metal chains, shackles, and they had posted a guard to keep watch. But we're told, empowered by the demon, this man was able to break his metal bonds. A mere human guard wouldn't have been much of an obstacle. There's very little the local jagger could do to stop him. And so the demon would drive the man out into the desert, into further hopeless isolation, exposed to the elements under the blistering desert day sun or in the freezing nights. Luke is going to real lengths to describe to us this demon-possessed man's terrible situation in far more detailed and grotesque terms than we have seen in any other demon-possessed individual in Luke's gospel. And I think verse 30 helps us to understand why, as the stakes get higher. The demon, of course, still within the man, and for the first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus asks the demon a question. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? What is your name? Now, why does Jesus want to know the demon's name? Or more, more importantly, why does he want it to be vocally known? You see, some have taken this to mean that Jesus needed to know the demon's name in order to have power over the demon and cast him out effectively. That there is a real power struggle going on here, and it really could go either way. Jesus or the demon, not so sure. Doesn't seem very likely, though, given what we've seen so far. This possessed man, what's he doing? He's on his knees before Jesus. The demons within him are screaming at Jesus, I beg you, don't torment me. Doesn't seem like much of a power struggle to me. 
But see how the demon answers Jesus' question halfway through verse 30. How does the demon respond? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And so now the horrific extent of this possession is made clear. See, a legion was a Roman military unit that consists of, at any one time, usually five to 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus might be hearing one demonic voice speak through this man, but it is a united voice that represents thousands of evil spirits. Now just look back at Luke 8, verse 2. Look back at Luke 8, verse 2. See what we're told there? This funny little extra detail that Luke adds in for some reason about Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus had delivered of seven demons. Seven demons. And you don't need to look back, but I can tell you uh, in one of the first exorcisms, uh, when Jesus is back in the synagogue in Capernaum, back in Luke 4, we see here a man who seems to have just the one demon whom Jesus casts out. Capernaum, Jesus versus one. Mary Magdalene, Jesus versus seven. This time, Jesus versus anything between five to six thousand. The reason Luke is drawing out this confrontation in a way that he has not done before is to make it clear for us that this is the most severe case of demonic oppression Jesus has faced thus far in his ministry. Now, why is that significant? Ever since my dear wife, Melissa, introduced me to uh, Asian films, I've been a big fan of the Ip Man series. I'm sure you can understand why. And what I've noticed as each of these films have come out is that they've steadily increased the numbers of opponents that Ip Man has to fight. Ip Man won. He battles a decent number of thugs with the help of some others. That's no sweat. It Man 2, he battles trained kung fu masters with no help from others. Starting to sweat a little bit. It Man 3, he battles hundreds of guys armed with lead pipes with nothing but his bare fists. Okay, real sweat now by the end of that one. But you know, as you watch the It Man films, you know that no matter how many opponents It Man faces, you know how it's gonna end. He's It Man. You're not watching to see who's gonna win, you're watching to see how It Man's gonna win. Is he gonna put the big boss in this weird kind of arm lock whilst drop kicking out one of his minions out the window and then finger punching two behind him all at the same time? Who knows? But the result is certain. No matter how many he has to fight, as the opponents increase and increase and increase, it just goes to show how great Ip Man is at Kung Fu. Wing Chun, to be precise. Well, so with Jesus here, he is facing down thousands of spiritual enemies. 5,000 demons all raging within this one hopeless slave of a man. And none of the townsfolk have been able to do anything to restrain him, really, let alone relieve him of this affliction. But see how this immense concentration of evil relates to Jesus in verse 31? 
as we come to the final showdown. And they begged him, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. There's no question as to who has the upper hand here. Jesus is standing and listening. And the demons through this man are on their knees in submission and they're begging. And they beg Jesus, Legion begs Jesus, not to command him into the abyss. Verse 31, into the abyss. This is the, the torment that it seems he was referring to earlier. Jesus, don't torment me. And now we see what that means. Don't send me into the abyss. Now, there are lots of views on what the abyss might represent here. Uh, for the Jews, it was associated with the, the watery depths of the oceans. And as Paul Barker mentioned last week, the Jews were not big fans of the oceans. Symbolized a, a place of disorder and destruction, a place in which wickedness dwells. And we're given a similar concept of this place where wickedness dwells, a place of disorder and destruction uh, later in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. Uh, Peter is using a different word here to describe this place, but I think it's the same concept that we have in Luke 8. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. I, I think this is what the abyss represents. It's a holding place for fallen angels, demonic forces, a place of incarceration where they must simply wait for the inevitable judgment of God to come. And that is the incarceration that Legion desperately wants to avoid. He knows his time is coming but he doesn't want to be restrained while he waits. You see verse 32? Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Legion's greatest concern was to continue occupying some kind of physical body. Even the body of a pig was better than nobody at all. And amazingly, Jesus grants Legion permission. He won't allow this demon to continue terrorizing this man, but he does permit Legion to transfer across and possess this great herd of pigs for a time. In Mark's gospel, we're told it's around 2,000 in number, a huge herd of livestock. You see, it seems Jesus does still have a purpose in allowing Legion to stick around for a little bit longer, but it's only with his permission that this transfer takes place. So we read verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Legion's permitted freedom is short-lived. Having come into the pigs, they go berserk, they rush down the hillside, and they drown as they fall into the sea. Legion is left without a viable host, and we're not told what happens to him as a result. But remember, the, the abyss, it's associated with the watery depths. So we might have a clue in the fact that the pigs end up in the sea, drowned in the Sea of Galilee, the watery depths. And it's only as Legion goes to the pigs, and then the pigs rush down the hill, and they perish. It's only as that happens that those around the scene really wake up to what's going on. 
verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. No doubt these guys who were looking after that great herd, they knew questions were going to be asked, particularly by their employers. You you say all the pigs just happened to run down the hill and into the sea all in one go, just on this one day. That might sound a little bit like the old, the dog ate my homework excuse. It's a bit far-fetched. So these guys, they waste no time. They rush back out into the towns and into the cities. And what's being described here is a huge area. But all the people in that area, they all come out in one, as one, one mass in that very moment. Verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. They they were used to seeing this troublemaker in isolation, preferably, roaming the tombs of the dead, violent and deranged, impossible to restrain, overpowering their own guards. And now they see him, verse 35, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Uh, They were used to shielding their ears from his unearthly screams, his desperate cries, and and closing their eyes when they caught a glimpse of his nakedness and the cuts and the bruises that would have been all over his body. And now they see him sitting, clothed in his right mind, enjoying the presence of Jesus. There's no sign of his troubled past. He is free. He's restored in every way. Now, my wife, Melissa, is a very patient woman. She has to be. Especially when we are having dinner before going to the cinema on any given night. Because as we get closer and closer to the start of the film, in terms of the the time it will start, I'll be incessantly checking my watch at the dinner table. Yep, yep. And sending those, oh, no, not so subtle hints uh, across the table. Hurry up, honey. Film's on at 7. It's 6.45. Less chat, more eat. (laughs) She's very, very patient with me, thankfully. And the reason why I want to get to the film on time is because I've paid good money to see the trailers before the main show to get these little tasters of what I can look forward to in my movie-going future. Very sad. (laughs) Well, this incredible account of Jesus delivering this man from great evil in every way, naked now, clothed, roaming now, settled, screaming and now sane, sitting at Jesus' feet. It's like a trailer. It's a little preview of what Jesus is going to do in our world on a worldwide scale one day. This is a taste of what is to come when Jesus will deal with evil once and for all. It's just a teaser, us witnessing Jesus releasing this possessed man with a word. And we know, having known the end of Luke's gospel from the beginning, That for Jesus to restore our world, consumed by darkness, not merely one man, 
that that cost Jesus far more than simply uttering a word in his great authority. It meant himself giving himself up to death that we might be free. Because, friends, it's at the cross that Jesus ultimately crushed the real power that Satan has. You know, Satan, he's called Satan for a good reason, means accuser. Because that is where Satan's real power lies. The power to accuse. Uh, To say before God, hey God, look at him. Look at him. Look at all the ways in which he has broken your laws, in which he's defied you as his God. All the lies and all the coveting, all the hatred and the bitterness he's shown to you and to others in his pride. Look at all the ways in which he's marred your image. One made in your image for your glory, but he's resisted you time and time again. Tim doesn't deserve life with you. He should come with me. He should pay for his sin. And Satan would be right if it were not for Christ who prayed that price for me in his own body at the cross, taking my place under that punishment so that now in him, Satan no longer has the power to accuse anyone, anyone who belongs to Jesus. He is an empty threat. And we can look forward to the day when Jesus will put down Satan for good. He will deal with every wickedness in this fallen world that that the evil one has promoted. And so restore us, his people, trusting in his blood in every way. Not just from the penalty and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. No more sin. No more crying. No more death. That's a vital encouragement for us as God's people as we wait, I think. Because I know in myself how I'm tempted to groan and seemingly despair when I see refugee children drowning in the seas of the Mediterranean, fleeing from brutal regimes who act in what would certainly, I think, rightly be termed demonic ways. Now, much more recently, we're starting to see armed guards patrolling the streets and the malls of our own city for fear of terrorist attacks. And within this city of KL, we tire of the scandals, the corruption, the bribery, the abuse of those who are most vulnerable. Well, as we see the rampant wickedness in our world, be encouraged that Jesus is risen, He is exalted. He has triumphed over evil. He's robbed Satan of his ultimate power to destroy. And so even as Satan is permitted to continue and rage all the more for a time, he knows his days are numbered. He knows Christ will return as judge, as well as God's Savior for our world, and make all things new. And yet that brings us to the painful twist in these verses. Because we're told here how those in the world respond to Jesus, having seen his great deliverance. You'd expect them to be delighted, right? Jesus has done what none of them could do. Not simply restrained this man possessed by evil, but released him from that bondage. Remove this great threat that he posed to the surrounding regions. No more howling, no more screaming, no more sleepless nights, no more violent behavior. 
Well, have a look at the end of verse 35. How do the people respond? He was clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. They don't receive Jesus with open arms as God's king and savior for them. As the herdsmen explain in detail what's happened, they become all the more united against Jesus. Verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Their reaction to Jesus and this wonderful deliverance it is very much like the attitude of the very demon that Jesus has just driven out of the man. You remember what Legion cried out in fear before Jesus? What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the God most high? And here we see the crowds also fear, seized with fear. Not a healthy fear, not a, a reverent fear for Jesus, but a fear that promotes distance from him. And so they asked Jesus, go away. Please depart, leave us alone. We, we know you're someone great. We've seen what you've done for this man, but we just don't want you here. We don't want the cost. Our pigs have been drowned in the sea. And that's valuable livestock, yes. Jesus, we see that actually you're chipping away at our prosperity right now. And we would rather just keep the status quo. Can you feel the tension here? You see, at first it seemed that the demon-possessed man was the truly hopeless case in this story, but Luke now shows us that it's the respectable, polite folk in the town that show themselves to be worse off. Jesus' deliverance of this man, it's actually revealed their true nature. Uh, like Legion, they want nothing to do with Jesus. Oh, in a far more polite and respectable way. They're not hanging out around tombs and terrorizing neighborhoods, but they don't want to face up to Jesus. They're scared of his authority and its implications. He is a man who can deal with great evil. What else might he have come to deal with? So we read in John's Gospel, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And friends, this is the nature of our world as God makes clear to us in his word under Satan's sway for a time who promotes this defiance against God and so our world in love with evil deeds would rather stay in darkness than come into the light. And we see that here with these respectable townsfolk. They are scared of Jesus and they tell him thanks but no thanks. Go away. And Jesus respects that. Verse 37, got in the boat and returned. I wonder, can we identify with them? We tempted to see the world the way they are seeing it. Oh, Jesus can help those people who are truly lost, who are in a really big mess. But I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sorted. Thanks. I've got my family. My EPF is looking pretty healthy. Please, Jesus, you know, you just... Go away. I don't want you to be the king. Not the king who died for me. I'd rather you just left me to my own devices, thanks. And if that is the attitude of our hearts, friends, then Luke tells us we are sharing in the fear and in the fate 
of demons. We are sharing in the fear and the fate of demons. Legion was permitted his freedom for a time, but his time came and will come when he has to face God in judgment, and so will all of us. And none of us can hope to face God in our sin and hope to live. We've all forfeited that right. And if we continue rejecting Jesus as the king who died for us, if we refuse to let him take that penalty that we can't deal with, if we refuse to let him take care of that and surrender our lives to him, if we keep on pushing him away, well, so we will pay the price for our sin in the end. Nothing's worth forsaking Jesus for. You know, the money that our world prizes, the relationships that we enjoy, but our world says that's the most important thing, they won't last. The fleeting comforts of this age will fade away, and yet Jesus alone promises us life in the face of death because he alone has laid down his life that we might live. Don't push him away for anything. Take him as your Lord if you have not yet done so today. And yet the delivered man, he couldn't be more different, could he? You know, where, where the crowds express great fear, he expresses astounding faith. You see what he does having been delivered by Jesus? Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The contrast between this delivered man and the crowd sending Jesus away, it couldn't be starker. They want nothing to do with him. He wants nothing but to be with him. Where the crowd show great opposition, the delivered man shows incredible devotion. And we see that not only in the fact that he wants to remain with Jesus, but then when Jesus refuses to let him remain and tells him instead to go back to your people, the people who have just rejected me and tell them what God has done for you, he humbly submits and obeys. When Jesus has a different plan than the plan that he hoped for, he still submits with joy. Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And you notice how Luke describes this man's obedience. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, this man saw what the disciples were struggling to see. He knew that, yes, it was God who had done this for him, but more importantly, he goes and tells people what Jesus has done for him because he knows that Jesus is his God. This man saw Jesus for who he is, his God who had redeemed him from the slavery to darkness, and so he goes and tells people everywhere what Jesus has done for him. And I find that that response very challenging for me as a Christian. This guy is so passionate to know and to serve Jesus, isn't he? Even when the command cuts across his desires, he joyfully submits and obeys. Think of all the times when I grumble 
because things aren't going the way that I want them to. But he has a greater joy for Jesus. I wonder, are we still rejoicing in him above all, no matter what our plans? Are we passionate to know and serve him? Do we still long in that sense to make him known? You know, I'm very thankful for the brother who continually reminded me years ago, Tim, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long, hard race in which there are going to be temptations and failures. And so you've got to keep your eyes where they belong, on Jesus. You've got to keep on each day marveling at just how much he has loved you. Remembering that, as it were, this man is an extreme example of where we've come from. The one, our king, who died for us when we were dead in our sins and wanted nothing to do with him. When we were under Satan and following the ways of our world without God, without hope, and Jesus laid down his life as God's son. For us, his enemies, to save us from that misery and in the place of sin and eternal condemnation that I know I deserve, he gave me and all who would trust in him what he deserved, an eternal inheritance in which we will know rest from all evil one day. No more pain, no more tears, no more death. And why have I received that? Why have any of us received that new status before God? Love. Jesus' love, no other reason. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up would I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. It's the truth of that gospel that will fuel our joy for Jesus. Remembering it, encouraging one another in it. That's what will fuel our joy for him. And like this man, if we are doing that, we will desire to make him known. I'm really encouraged by the ways I see that happening here at SMAC. You know, sharing the good news with our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors. Uh, won't you invite someone down next Sunday? A colleague? A next-door neighbor who's still lost, maybe not to the same extent of this guy, but lost in sin, who needs Jesus just as much as we did. We're working through Luke. We are sharing in this testimony that testifies to Jesus each week. There are so many out there who need to hear it. Won't you invite them on Sunday, having received life in Christ's name? Or maybe you can invite them down for the God who is there. Starts this Tuesday. Ten great opportunities to come and hear uh, Don Carson. He's one of the best Bible teachers alive today. Explaining the good news from all of the scriptures. When you make the most of that opportunity and help introduce someone to the God who is there and the God who gave his son to die that we wouldn't perish but have life with him. See, friends, as we devote ourselves to Jesus, as we seek to make him known, I trust that we will see God's power to transform our families, to transform our communities, and to grow his kingdom against which the gates of hell will never prevail. And as that happens, more and more will so the final day will draw closer and closer when Jesus will defeat every evil. And we know his everlasting rest. Satan, sin, and death.
Their days are numbered. So like this man, let's be telling others while we wait for that great day. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this awesome reminder of who your Son is, our Lord Jesus, who can bring hope to the most desperate of situations. Thank you so much for the ways in which we see his authority and power to deal with evil that is beyond the control of a mere man. Thank you so much that this points forward to the far greater deliverance that he has worked for your glory and for our sakes at the cross, giving himself to die, to rob Satan of his power, that we might be freed to know and enjoy you as our God again and have the promise of life in your kingdom forevermore. Father, I pray that you would help us to be continually this coming week remembering that good news, remembering how we have so greatly benefited from it through nothing but your sheer grace to us in Christ and that that would fuel our desire to be bold, to be sharing this good news with all who would hear, trusting that as we do, you will bring many more into your kingdom before that great day when evil will be no more. So strengthen us in these things, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.